Before we get started in the book of Exodus, we are starting a new journey in the book of Exodus this morning. I want us to take just a second to pray. Um, we are kind of boxed in. Now this service time restraint isn't as important as the other two services that we've done today, but I promise you that I will try my best to keep it within about 30-35 minutes since we do have little ones in here. Um, and little ones, we're glad you're here. So, you know, you're part of the church. You're not the future of the church. As Dolan always says, you guys are part of the church, and, and we're really grateful that you're here. Um, and my man's back there just enjoying his first church service in a while. Yep. So, <laughs> anyway, so yes, um, we love you kids. But I want us to take a second to pray. And I just said that about the time because I didn't intend on doing this in, in my preparation. Uh, y'all know that we aren't this kind of like God and country church. You know, we're, I mean, we're patriotic and, and we love all of those who have served our country and we're grateful for what we've lived in, but we don't in any way connect God's people to the United States of America in the sense of, of its, in, in the national sense, okay? Um, and, and so, having said that, what we've experienced as God's people living in the United States of America for many, many years is we've basically been untouched. Um, we don't know anything of persecution or, I mean, as a whole, I'm sure there have been some isolated you know, situations, but as a whole, we don't know anything of persecution. We don't, we don't know of anything of, um, you know, the, the type of riots that we've seen, at least in years. I mean, those of you that are here today probably have never experienced things like that. And so I thought it would be good for us just to come together and as a matter of prayer, we've started each service this way. I'm not going to ask you to do anything um, that you're not comfortable with. You just stay in your seat. I'm just simply asking you to join me in, in asking um, that God... Not bless us in the sense that it's typically understood to be blessed, but that God would bring true spiritual blessing to His people as we are the light in this dark world. The, the darker it gets, the brighter the light shines. And so we know that. We see that historically, that as God's people have been in some really dark situations, that is when His light, the, the light of the gospel, shines the brightest. And so that we would be a people um, that, that are ambassadors of that gospel, and that's our primary message. And our message isn't linked politically or, or to really anything other than Christ and Him crucified as the only hope for sinners. And, and that's going to always be our message. All right? And so when, when that message is believed, then we can make legitimate steps towards reconciliation. And we can make legitimate steps towards um, being a community of people that brings God true glory. Uh, but there's a lot of darkness and a lot of sadness that's going on right now. So I just want to take just a second. Um, to go to the Lord in prayer. So if you would join me. Father God, it, it's by the blood of Your Son and in the name of Your Son that we come to You this morning. I literally don't even know what to pray. Um, I thank You for the Scripture we saw last week in Romans eight twenty seven, that You, God the Holy Spirit, that You intercede for us with groanings that we can't express because You search the hearts and You know the secret will and mystery of the Father. And, and so, Lord, we're leaning heavy into that right now. We don't know exactly what to pray. I don't know if it's Your will to bring peace. I, I, I don't know those things. But I do know that You've called us as Your people to be ambassadors of Yours in this world. And so, Lord, as darkness closes in around us, and even darkness that we don't even know is darkness, but we can see plain darkness right now um, in so many different ways. God, let us be a people of grace. Let us be a people of mercy. Let us be a people who are identified by love. And the way that we truly love, and there's truly grace and there's truly mercy, is, is when we're people of truth. 
So Holy Spirit, embolden us to be proclaimers of the truth of the gospel. Father, help us to see that as, as, as people who have been brought into another family that didn't deserve to be brought into your family, who, as your word says, were actually enemies of yours, but you have graciously pursued us and brought us in. Let us be people who demonstrate that same type of love for our enemies and that same type of love for people who aren't like us. So, Lord, my prayer is one that I know is right in the middle of your will and that it's your great name is glorified. So, Father, glorify yourself. Help us to see our role as your people to glorify you and to be ambassadors of your love and your truth. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, thank you for praying with me. So, before we get rolling, if you do have your Bible, Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And did anybody not get an Exodus journal that would like one? So just raise your hands. One, two, three. Look at Bob. Bob, it's, it's like you've done this before today. <laughs> Man, we're like clockwork. We might as well just keep doing services all day, Bob. I mean, let's roll with it. You know? Yeah, anybody else? Everybody good? Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Bob. All right. So, because of you know, for time's sake, I, I don't like. There's going to be a lot of different rabbit trails that I really, really, really want to go down today. That we're just not going to have the luxury to go down. And they're not rabbit trails. They're good ones if they are rabbit trails. Just as we talk through the narrative of Genesis that leads up to the Book of Exodus. And so, I'm going to start off with just some really technical things that might feel boring, but they're necessary as we start any book of the Bible. These are things we typically deal with um, so that we're all on the same page. And so I won't necessarily reference what I'm going to say in the first, say, 10 minutes or so of this message every single Sunday. And so that's why it would be helpful for you to jot them down and just use it as a point of reference as we move forward. And so the meaning of the word Exodus. Kids, Exodus, what does it mean? Give you a hint. Exodus. I'm going to say it slower. Exit. Dust. That's so redneck. And we have some friends from Chicago that are here and they're like, man, what is even wrong with y'all? Alright, <laughs> right, so what does exit does mean? Exodus. Anybody? Anybody? There are wrong answers, not to make you nervous. <laughs> exit. Brandon, that boy, dominated those kids, man. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> it means to exit. And so this story is a story of God's people exiting the slavery that they were under in the land of Egypt. And so that's just a, obviously a small little snapshot, but that's why it's called the book of Exodus. Now, the author of Exodus is probably Moses. There's a chance that he didn't write all of it, but again, those are things you can study on your own. But most scholars believe that Moses was, in fact, the author of the book of Exodus. In fact, the first five books of the Old Testament was probably um, had Moses as their author. The date that it occurred, there's even uh, less common consensus around the date, but one that I feel pretty comfortable with, that, that and, and most do, conservative scholars, would say 1446 B.C. B.C. means what, kiddos? Before Christ. So 1446 B.C., so it's, it, Exodus means to exit. The author is Moses. 
And the time frame is 1446 BC. Not that that time frame gives you any point of reference. Like, okay, yeah, all right, I understand that now. Um, but hopefully we'll see that as we journey through this. So, so there's three key themes. Before you come off this graphic, Zach, I want you guys, or there you go. All right. It's just the third time. All right. So Exodus, if you're like me and you're not real artsy and you might not even know what color the paint is on the walls in your house, okay? You're in good company because that's me. Like, I'm not super artsy. But I want you to notice something. And thank you, Holly, for designing this graphic. Holly Tao. Um, these three words, chosen, delivered, and kept. As we, as we talk through these three major themes in the book of Exodus, these are going to be three things that we see over and over and over and over and over again. That God's people have been chosen, that God's people have been delivered, and that God's people, because of these two, are this. They're kept and kept forever. And so I want to show you this next slide. That are you good? You crowded? Okay. No. All right. Because I'm leaning this way. We're good. Okay. All right. All right. So here's three themes, key themes in the book of Exodus. First one: God's chosen people have received covenant promises. Now, I'm going to talk more about these covenant promises in just a second. But if you want to jot this down, and I don't know if it's going to do anything for you like it did to me, not the first time, but like the second or third time, as I just really thought about the, the fact that God has actually chosen a people. And the people that He's chosen, He's given covenant promises. And so these covenant promises aren't even as good as the promises that might come from your father or your mother. I'm sorry, they are as good. They're better than the promises that might come from your father or your mother. And not saying that your father and mother, maybe you have a good mom and dad. Okay? But the fact is, is that as mom and dads, we can make promises. The reality is, is we don't have the full power and knowledge to know if those promises are going to come true or not. Not true of God. And so these promises, these covenant promises, are from God. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. The one who is all powerful. The one who is all wise. The one who is ever present. He has seen fit in His providence and in His grace to give promises to His people. So that's the first one. God's chosen people have received promises. Second, God delivered His people. Um, yes, God delivered His people through a mediator. Now when you see this word, your mind may, I hope it does, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, your mind might go right to Jesus. Because when you think about a mediator, a mediator is someone who comes in between two people who had no way to get to each other without him. So that's what a mediator does. A mediator comes when there's massive conflict. A mediator comes in and tries to mediate the situation in hopes that he, he or she reconciles the two people that are at odds. So that's what a mediator does. And so God delivered His people through a mediator. And historically, God has used individuals or even groups of people to deliver His people and, and the people that He uses as a mediator. We're going to see Moses as the mediator in the book of Exodus. But as we see Moses as a, a lowercase m mediator, I hope and pray that week after week after week, as we look at Moses and how God used him, we see that there's a capital M mediator in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So God's chosen people have received covenant promises. God delivered His people through a mediator. Third thing, God's grip on His people assure that they are kept both now and forever. W wouldn't this just have to be true? Like if, if God has chosen a people and God has delivered these chosen people, then they're kept forever. I mean, if these two aren't true, there's no guarantee about this one. But because this is true and this is true, we know, we know that that is in fact true. 
So those are three key themes. Take a picture of it. Whatever you need to do, hopefully you got it jotted down because I try to go slow through it. Now, let's direct our attention to verses 1 through 7 in the book of Exodus. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers in all that generation. Verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, I want to direct your attention to the very first word of the very first verse. And I want to direct your attention to something that you can't see. Alright, so I know that sounds weird. But in the Hebrew, and I want you guys to check me on this, in the original Hebrew, this letter begins, or this story begins, with the word and. I don't know if we have any English gurus in here. Um, don't let me know because then that makes me nervous because I feel like I'm being judged every time I'm in the presence of an English teacher and it's because I am, um, because they're smarter than me. Um, so, so there's no, it's not their fault, it's my fault. But wouldn't you agree that it's odd to say the least, to not only start a sentence with the word and, but to start a whole story with the word and. And is a conjunction, which means it's connecting thoughts. And so the word and, even though it's not translated into the English, it's there in the Hebrew, it's vitally important for us to understand because that should alert our minds to there's something more going on here. And what it does, it alerts our minds back to Genesis chapter 1 through 50. And so this is a continuation of the Genesis narrative. This isn't just some set-apart story. It continues. In fact, I want to read to you Genesis 50, 24 through 26. And if you have a Bible, turn there. And that's going to be music to my ears. Genesis 20, I'm sorry, 50, 24. And I'm going to read it through Exodus verse 1. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that He swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and, and, we, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Verse 26, last verse of Genesis. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him. He was put in a coffin in Egypt. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household. And then he goes on to the list of names. And so that's how it reads. And so it's vitally important that we understand the whole book of Exodus is to be read in light. Dang, I'm I keep forgetting. I keep wondering why the lighting's so bad in these services, and it's because I haven't had my glasses on in the first, in, in the second, and the third. So forgive me for having to transition that. But I keep straining so hard, and I, I forget my glasses. But the whole book needs to be read in light of what has gone on before. And so if, if you would like to read. Um, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, what you'll see is that God had made a promise to Abraham. Now Abraham was a man who was called out of idolatry. Abraham was not the, the, the cream of the crop. He's not a man that you would have picked. He was an idol-worshipping unbeliever. And the God of the universe chooses this idol-worshipping unbeliever to be the man, literally, that's the father, the spiritual father, physical father of his people forever. Again, there's so much to talk about, but I encourage you to read the Genesis account. But God takes this idol-worshipping man and makes him these 
covenant promises that we spoke of earlier. And so there were three key components to these promises that God made Abraham. Now, I promise you I'm going somewhere with this because all of this connects, and we'll see in just a second. Three key components to God's promises to Abraham. First, the promise of a people. In Genesis 12, verse 22, He promised Abraham that, he, that, that, that a people, meaning a group of people, would come from Him. Not just a physical group, but a spiritual group. That's something to always watch in Scripture. God often talks about the physical first, and the physical is just a smaller story of a greater story. Okay, and, and so there, like we're going to see in a second, there were a lot of them. There were a whole lot of them. They multiplied greatly and all of this. And we'll see that in a second. But, but there were a lot of them. And so physically this is true, but it's also speaking to a greater reality, which is the spiritual. And so these components to Abraham's, of the promises that God made Abraham, but the promise of people second, the promise of a land. That was a physical land. Canaan was where uh, uh, the land that God had given to his people. Again, it was a reality. It was a physical land. But it's a small pointer to a greater Canaan that will come one day. Third, the promise of a seed. Now that might seem odd because this isn't necessarily a promise that God made to, to Abraham. It was a promise that God made generally in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. You might remember after Adam and Eve had sinned. Uh, this is the first gospel verse in the whole Bible. Where God promises to send one that would crush the head of the serpent. The serpent will bruise his heel, but ultimately this Savior and this Redeemer would crush the head of the serpent. And so through these promises, friends, God promises Abraham that He is going to bless all nations through him and through Abraham's family. Now, back to Exodus. 400 years, actually not quite back to Exodus, we're 400 years out now, alright? 400 years before the events of Exodus 1 took place, the threat of God's promise was at stake. And the, and, and the reason there was this threat of you know, God's promise coming to an end it was because of a famine. And that famine was real. So the story, as far as how Joseph plays in, and all of these brothers that we read about in Exodus 1, and there's a whole lot of backstory to talk about the story of Joseph. But basically, Joseph was the baby of 12. Okay, And Joseph was special to his father. And, and Joseph was uh, very much theologically minded and had a really good understanding of God, as we'll see in just a second. But he needed a PR man. Because Joseph had this dream when he was a little kid. And, and in the dream, he learned that all of his older siblings were going to bow down and worship him. So Joseph goes back to his siblings and he says, All right, guys, gather around. I'm, I'm adding some to this, paraphrasing. Okay, Gather around. I had this dream. And y'all were in it. Oh, really? What was it? What was it, Jojo? You know, maybe they called him Jojo before this dream. <laughs> what was it, Jojo? He said, well, in this dream, not half of you, not 75% of you, but every one of you bowed down and worshipped me. Those of you with siblings, how does that fall on your ears? Right? So you know what happened? They got upset. And they got so upset that they got fed up and they acted on their emotions and they got rid of Joseph. In a, a true act of evil, they took Joseph and sold him, faked his death, lied to the father, the whole works. It was a nasty, twisted, like, you know, reality TV show, Jerry Springer feeling thing that happened. 
But God is providentially working through it because these are His people. And so in spite of His people's sin and in spite of His people's rebellion, Joseph, through a lot of other little scenarios that happen, some good, some bad, finds himself as the prime minister of Egypt. And so as the prime minister of Egypt, Joseph had had another dream earlier where God let him know that a famine was coming. And so Joseph stored, the, uh, 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 the grain houses were stored. There was plenty of food. Joseph knew that probably his family was going to, on a last-ditch effort, come back to Egypt. And that's exactly what they did. And so Abraham's people, God's people, because of the famine, if they didn't move, if they didn't go to Egypt, then they die. And it's not just a people or losing a people that's at risk here, right? It's more than that. As bad as that would be, what else is at stake? God's promises. God's promises. If His people die, then everything He told Abraham is untrue. And so God in His providence arranged through everything that happened in Joseph's life to bring these 70 people to Egypt at the exact time that Joseph, their brother and, and, and their relative, was the prime minister who had in fact stored the grain and saved the people. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, this is what Joseph tells his family. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, he did, You know what I would have said if I. Hey, y'all remember that dream? Remember that dream? Here it is. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for, I'm in the, for am I in the place of God? As for you, this is what I wanted you to hear. Listen to this. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. God's people were saved. And the way that they were saved was through how he providentially worked through the life of Joseph through sinful acts and some good act. I mean, just he took the whole thing, all of the ingredients, and preserved not only his people, but he also preserved his, his promises as well. And so in Exodus 1, 1 through 5, this list of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt, um, it, it lets us know there were how many that came at the time of the famine. Anybody catch that? There's 70. And so there's 70 of them. Alright, so, so this is one of the things I love about the Bible. A lot happens in a little bit of time, at least as you read it. So we know in verse 5, it tells us there's 70. Now look at verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So can we agree that a lot happened, right, between verse 5 and verse 7? 70, God's people are preserved. And now, as it reads, they increased greatly, they multiplied, they grew exceedingly strong, and the land was filled with them. I want to read to you how the Hebrew would read literally. If, if you just t took the literal translation and read it, I, I thought it was hilarious myself, um, but it really helped me understand it as well. This is what it would say, verse 7. As for the Israelites, they grew, they were fruitful, they swarmed. Some of our houses feel like that, right? They swarmed, they increased. Watch this. They got powerful more and more, and the land was filled with them. They grew they were fruitful, they swarmed, they increased, they got powerful more and more, and the land was filled with them. He's making a point, right? 
And so this writer, Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is making a point about the fact that 70 in the family came, in Abraham's family, but now, between verses 5 and 7, there's a multitude of people. Why is that important? I think there's at least two reasons. And the first one is this. Israel's amazing population growth was the result of God's original design. Do you remember what God told Adam and Eve before sin? Be what? Fruitful and, come on y'all, multiply. God's original design was for His people to be fruitful and multiply. But watch this also to see God's ongoing faithfulness. The, what God told Adam and Eve before sin was to be fruitful and multiply. What God told Abraham and his wife Sarah, even though they were well up into years before they had a child of their own, was that they were going to, to essentially be fruitful and multiply. But that promise had, had come under fire multiple times since then. And so we see through this statement in verse 7 that they swarmed, there was tons of them, they multiplied. Not only was there a lot of them, but they were evidently successful and they were strong and had a lot going for them as they were in Egypt was to show God's original design, but also to show God's faithfulness and God's ongoing care for His people. There's no reason that God's people should be what they are in verse 7. God's people should have died because of the famine. But God's faithfulness brought them out of that. Now the second thing that is going to be important, and we'll see this next week as we kind of start the narrative, is, is why this is important, why verse 7 is important. The Israelites' large numbers actually brought the persecution. You say, what persecution? Well, next week you'll see the persecution that it brings. And I don't think it's rocket science for us to understand why Egypt was upset about Israel. A new Pharaoh came that didn't know Joseph and his family. And so he, he, he can't deny the obvious there are a lot of these Hebrews. Not, there's a lot of them. They're, they're, they're gifted. They're smart. I mean, like they rally around each other. They're all about one another. I mean, he, he feels threatened by them. Have you ever been a part of something that started small and then kind of saw maybe some exponential growth and, and, and you get those true OGs, right? You know what I mean? That original group. That, you know, that bunch that, you know, there's some nostalgia there and there's a lot of things that are good about that. But one of the temptations for that specific context that I just described is that there can be this jealousy that creeps in or this thinking of, oh my goodness, there's more of them than us now. Right? We're going to be outvoted. It's a similar feel that you might have toward, like, your in-laws. I mean, not to bring up any, like, anything negative to you right now. Uh, but seriously, like, you have this group of this tight family group and everybody's grown up together and then sometimes for some people for the brother or for the sister or for the mom or for the dad or whoever it is when somebody marries into that family sometimes there can just kind of be this resistance to that person and it's because there's this threat the same threat that Egypt feels as far as the Israelites like does this mean they're going to have more power and especially when that starts to grow in number he feels threatened and there's going to be some tremendous persecution that God's people deal with. And so the second reason verse 7 is there is to let us know that not only is this a picture of God's faithfulness, but it's also to let us know that this is the very reason of the persecution that God's people will be under. In fact, this is the beginning of the persecution of God's people. Again and again, throughout their history, the future of Israel would look gloomy as these bigger, stronger foreign armies threaten to wipe them out. And it's throughout those times that God's people could return to this story and find hope. Friends, this 
The book of Exodus is the gospel of the Old Testament. And so as, as Hebrew people, as, as God's people would journey beyond the book of Exodus and they would read the first five books of the Old Testament and they would think about Exodus, they would be encouraged because of the fact that they are God's chosen people, that that God had delivered them. And, and because He has chosen them and delivered them, He will keep them forever. And so it might would go down something like this if, if, if Jeremy and I are too... Little like Hebrew boys, and, and, and I come to Jeremy because I'm struggling because I have something going on in my personal life, or you know, my home life is bad, or my wife, or my mom, or my dad, or my kids, or whatever it is, and I feel like everything's closing in and there's nowhere to go. Is God faithful? Where has He gone? Does He still love me? Has God forgotten me? What about the fact that He's a loving Father? Like what I'm going through doesn't feel consistent with a loving Father. What a good Hebrew friend would do is He would sit me down and He would say, Hank, I don't know if that would be my Jewish name. Obadiah. I like Obadiah. Hank, don't you remember? Don't you remember what God did? He brought our people out of the land of Egypt. And not only did He bring them out, He split the sea. God has shown His faithfulness. He fed them out of the rock. He fed them manna from heaven. He covered the sun with a cloud. God is faithful. He's proven that over and over and over again. And the proper response in that little story would be for me, the one that struggled to fall in humility before the faithful God and say, yes, you are faithful and you're not going to stop being faithful because I'm one of yours. And you've delivered us and therefore you will keep us forever. And so the reason I've really emphasized this morning how big of a deal it is that God has preserved His people and friends, that God will always preserve His people because what's at stake is something greater than even the loss of human life. What's at stake here is, is, is God and His promises and His ability to come through and to carry out what He promised that He would, in fact, carry out. And so, as I thought about this this week, I was reminded of the story of Jesus. And I'm about to wrap up here. But I was reminded of the story of Jesus. And in that story, in Matthew chapter 2, according to Matthew's account, you remember King Herod ordered that every single boy under the age of two in Bethlehem be killed. Do you remember that? you remember why he did that? He wanted Jesus dead. The enemy has always, always tried to thwart the promise and plan of God. Always. That hasn't changed today, and, and we have a historical account of over and over and over again of a real enemy trying to thwart and destroy the plan of God. And so King Herod wanted every boy under the age of two to be killed because he'd heard the racket around this child called Jesus, who some were saying was the Messiah. But God's faithful. And a different Joseph, Jesus' earthly father Joseph, in a dream, was told about King Herod's decree. And so they fled. Ironically, do you know where he fled with little Jesus and Mary? To Egypt. And Jesus was raised in that exact region. Uh, I'm sorry, region. Again, what's at stake was not just people. What's at stake was the actual Savior and the future promise of God. And so therefore salvation and God's plan of redemption was at stake. This is repeated throughout the Bible, that the people of God are always under attack because the enemy wants to destroy His people and therefore destroy 
His promise, and He cannot do that. It's not going to happen. The Bible is clear that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Now, it, I know this feels really first century-ish, sort of. You know what I mean? Like, it feels like we're hiding in a bunker right now, like preaching. I know that's not the case. We're not hiding. But it, it, feels, it feels odd. But, I mean, I think about Christians all over the world who, who must understand this better than we do. As they continue to find ways to gather weekly when their literal lives are at stake, but they know that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And because of Jesus and what He's done, even if they lose life itself, they enter into the glorious promise and hope of every child of God. And that is to be in the presence of the Lord. So if if Satan can destroy Abraham's family, then he can prevent this Savior from being born. And if He can prevent the Savior from being born, then obviously um, there is no salvation. And all of God's people are eternally lost forever. But praise the Lord, that Savior was born and God will preserve. He has preserved and and He will continue to preserve His people. And so Exodus is going to have tremendous spiritual lessons for our own daily walk with the Lord. I was reminded in closing of uh, a conversation uh, that Paul had. Well, he, he wrote it to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And in 1 Corinthians 10, I want you to see get there. In 1 Corinthians 10, I want you to see how Paul applies the story of Exodus to the believers and where they are. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. He's referencing the Exodus account. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Don't you love the connection that Paul makes to to Jesus Himself as as the one who is actively working with God's people in the book of Exodus? You see that many times in the New Testament. I'm sorry, in the Old Testament. And Paul brings such clarity there that it was Christ Himself that protected and fed God's people. Verse 5, watch this. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased... For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, you're probably going to get frustrated with God's people as we journey through Exodus. Okay? There's a really good chance you're going to roll your eyes and say, how in the world could people that didn't just see one plague, not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, not seven, not eight, not ten, not eleven, but twelve plagues, twelve different miracles that God brought to rescue them from Egypt. To Are you telling me something? What does that mean? Ten plagues, my bad. Sorry, thank you. Thank you very much. I think I said that every service. Yeah, dang. Why don't y'all tell me? Now we're live. <laughs> y'all have more grace than everybody in the web world. All right. Ten plagues. Ten plagues that, that they saw God work miraculously to bring them out and God provide and provide and provide and provide. Yet what we're going to see is a lot of them spurned that. As soon as God would execute this wonderful... Um, um, uh, you know, power and show this um, rescue and bring them out of danger, they would find themselves back to complaining and fussing and whining. And I was pretty hard on them when I first started reading Exodus, but God was faithful to remind me that I'm honest, I'm the exact same way. There are so many times that I, I would acknowledge God's faithfulness and acknowledge His power and acknowledge His salvation, and then as soon as something doesn't go my way, I find myself just like they were in complaining and fussing and saying, well, where are you now, 
Lord. And, and so that's what verse 5 means. Nevertheless, most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, j- jump down to verse uh, 7 in 1 Corinthians 10. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble if some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Verse 11 is what I wanted you to see. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And then verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fail. These things were written down for our instruction. In other words, Paul's letting us know that Exodus is intended for our spiritual benefit. We're to the look at the responses, not only of, of God towards the people of, of um, I'm sorry, towards His people, but we're also to look at their response to God in spite of the grace that He consistently showed them over and over and over. These acts that you would think would bring about worship did not always bring about the worship that you would expect to see throughout that. And so, the Exodus story is a story of deliverance from bondage through the work of a Savior. And it is, in fact, the Christian story. In, in, in Romans chapter 16, in closing... Not 16. Chapter 6, verse 17 through 18. It's all running together now. Um, That's what Paul says. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. The reality that we're going to see in the first few chapters of Exodus is that God's people are slaves. And it is a true physical slavery. But remember what I said earlier. That the physical is always pointing to a spiritual. And the, rea- and, the, and the truth is, for every person who's been conceived in this world, the Bible's plain that we are depraved sinners. Which means we're not sinning when we do something externally. We do sin externally because of who we are on the inside. And we're actually slaves of sin. And there's no way for us to loosen those chains on our own. We don't have the righteousness it takes to get out of this. We can't free ourselves. But Jesus has set us free from sin. The story of Exodus is about God's people being delivered and set free from slavery. That's the Christian story. The Gospel message is that we as people, as sinners, are enslaved to sin. And the only way that we can be free is through Jesus and His deliverance. And essentially, that is what the entire Bible is about. Let's pray.